The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this hour, the Fed holds steady, but US stocks drop after Chair Jerome Powell says low inflation is transitory, dampening prospects for a rate cut. The committee would be concerned if inflation were running persistently above or below 2%. We do see good reasons to think that some or all of, of the unexpected decrease may wind up being transient. The U.S. and China could announce a trade deal by next Friday, sources are telling CNBC, as Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin hails productive talks in Beijing. Elsewhere, the British Prime Minister Theresa May has sacked her Defence Secretary for allegedly leaking plans for Huawei's involvement in the UK's 5G rollout. And BNP Paribas posts a 22% rise in first quarter net profit, boosted by better-than-expected revenues and backs its 2020 targets. For the moment, we stay in what we see, as we said, that we would aim, we aim that the ROE will be 9.5%, and you see that we are well on track to do so. Uh, morning, everybody. Morning, Steve. Morning, Karen. Good morning, Jeff. Morning. Good to see you around the desk this morning, both of you. Let's uh, talk about BMP then. The numbers through from BMP Paribas. Steve gave you the headline there. Q1 net profit in at 1.92 billion euros. So that's up 22% from the first quarter uh, for 2018. The revenue line, 11.14 billion euros, up 3.2% from the uh, comparative quarter. The market was looking for 10.65. So that's a beat, and they are better on the net line. The uh, group, though, saying uh, the uh, net profit lifted by 838 million on capital gain made on the sale of the SBI life stake. So be aware that there are some exceptional items in here. The uh, group saying the CIB business in the first quarter has recovered from the fourth quarter thanks to a more favourable market environment. Well, I think we're getting that drift from a number of the banks that are reporting that they have seen a slight improvement in that area of the business as a result of corporates perhaps engaging in a, a little bit more activity. Um, the group says core equity tier one ratio in 11.7% on March the 31st, and that is stable across from January the 1st. Um, I think that's a pretty good read on uh, where we are in terms of the BMP numbers. We are going to bring you more from Juliana's interview with BMP CFO Lars Machinal. That's coming up at 7.15 CET. We've got more banking numbers crossing this morning. ING uh, also reporting its numbers for the first quarter, a net result of about 1.11 uh, billion euros just crossing the tape. Uh, this says uh, it comes on the back of underlying pre-tax result of 1.58 billion. The net core lending at the bank increased by 8.7 billion euros in the first quarter. Net customer deposit inflow has also amounted to 4.8 billion euros. The company are going on to say we've had a positive start to the year 
with first quarter results that show good commercial momentum. And that's quite key because we have had a fairly weak patch for some of the banks, uh, more on the investment banking side. So uh, these numbers are quite decent. And if you look at the year-to-date performance, uh, the stock has been up 20%, not quite keeping pace with uh, what you've seen on the AEX. However, it uh, has been somewhat of a recovery trade. Uh, don't forget there's been uh, some uh, banking scandals to the bank in recent years around money laundering. And uh, the company uh, also uh, very strong growth plans using its online platform. Slightly different approach to other banks where they still have the, the typical model where they have bricks and mortar. Uh, this is a bank that's uh, moved very heavily into the online space, which has limited costs and also fuel growth. Isn't it funny? I mean, ING is the one. You talk to European fund managers and they go, well, I'm a little bit off banks. Don't want too many banks. But I do have ING. Mm. And it's one of about three banks in Europe that I think uh, the money managers are comfortable holding at this point. And I think it's that view that at least ING knows what it is at this point and continues to beaver away at just generating higher client activity and taking the commissions as a result of that. And they've done relatively well weathering the pain of those uh, weaker net interest margins that we know are affecting other banks in the space. Yeah, you've got to pick uh, the, the type of exposure you want, right? Whether it's an investment bank or whether you want to be in the more sort of tech growth part of the market or whether you want to be in more recovery stock. And I, I think that's what investors sort of get to weigh up when they, they look at a basket of banking stocks. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fraught with danger, isn't it? I noticed a negative story on one of the key challenges banks in, um, I think it was the Financial Times I was reading this morning, about Metro and about how uh, some of their own internal issues have affected their business clientele as well. So it is fraught with danger when you are a younger challenger stroke fintech financial institution. But as you say, the shares, modest performer really over the last 30 days, 3% higher. Um, Should we move on? Um, I just went onto the Carlsberg website. Do you know I was affronted? I had to put in my age. Really? <laughs> you do. When you go into a beer website. Truth, I did tell the truth, yes. Uh, 1980. Um, uh, yeah, right. Give or take 10 years. Did you reach parts of that website that you didn't reach on other beer company uh, no, websites? No, no, I didn't. No, okay. um, uh, none of that branding stuff with me. No, but only because I wanted to see, look at their brands, look at where they're at in terms of advertising campaigns, etc., etc. Because I, I'd ordered previously, before I went on the site, had a look at their share price performance. And my goodness me, what a, an extraordinary share price they've had uh, over the last few months or so. They are trading bang on a 52-week high. They've had a 25.99% rally as well. They're trading at 21.6 times. So um, a much-loved stock at the moment. So then I went over to Heineken. Um, I don't know if you want to give me some uh, 1970s logo from that one as well, Jeff. Yeah. What was the phrase for Heineken? Was it reaches the beers of a reaches the parts? Yeah, I think that's Heineken. It the parts. That's Carls- Heineken, is it? Carlsberg yeah. was probably if the best logo. Probably, well, you had, of course, yeah. um, Orson Welles. Yes. Um, dare I say, one of the greatest actors of his generation, yes. doing the, the voiceovers. At least the best called? voice. I don't know about the best actor. Uh, Brian Blessed might disagree. Or Who's uh, <laughs> um, the chap who does Darth Vader? L- James L. Jones. Je- uh, Some great yes, voice yeah. choices out there. Yeah, yeah. Really. Simon Callow. <laughs> anyway, the point being is I looked at the Heineken chart. Gosh, how distracted we get. The podcast going to love this one. Um, and I noticed that Heineken's done exactly the same thing. It's up 25% uh, year to date. It has a 52 week high pretty much in its shares and also trades at 21 times. So we don't talk about the brewers enough, but they are having a good run. So then I went to look at the numbers for today. So well, are they good enough to justify this share price move? And I've got to say, these are really encouraging numbers. First quarter revenue at Carlsberg, 13.9 billion Danish kroner as opposed to 13.6. Expected positive mix uh, of price 
across all regions, up 3%. That hasn't always been the case. Give me two seconds. Mid-single-digit percentage organic growth in operating profit. Again, very respectable as well. Western Europe, even Western Europe, growing organically by 2.4%. But the really nice gains are coming in Asia as well. Uh, organic growth, wait for it, 15.3% as a result of 5% price mix, mix and organic volume growth, 9.5%. The catalyst has become Asia. So with my interest peaked and concerned about droop in this, sp in this space, I've now gone and had a look at some of the other drinks companies yes. here. And I've had a look at Perno. Yes. And I've had a look at Diageo. They like and it. What do you know? Mm. The share price shape looks very similar across businesses that are in this sector. And yet I remember us sitting around this desk at the tail end of last year saying um, there's more consolidation to be done still a fragmented industry. There are well, concerns about volume, yes. uh, beer sales in some markets, and the United States was having some issues, shall we say, with quality spirits numbers. And yet a lot of those things seem to have been resolved as we come into 2019. And you remember we did have that conversation with Diageo, didn't we? Yes, we did. The, and they were much more optimistic about some of those headwinds now being resolved in this in this year. Don't forget about 12 or 18 months ago, we were talking about weakness in emerging market currencies. Mm. Uh, and the you know appetite for investors to be an EM was very, very weak. We saw a lot of shorting that part of the world. Now, every fund manager wants to be an EM, sees an opportunity. And a way to play that is through some of these names. Yeah, true. True, but many China files, China experts uh, have come on and said so many Western countries get it wrong. And I, I obviously I was focused on China, but I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the broader EM uh, and Latin Asia America, as well. Um, because Europe. they think that the, their brands are so strong and people are just going to roll over in the domestic markets. And so many brands have come back with their tail between the legs and say, we can't crack China. We can't change the way they do business. We can't change the way they consume necessarily. Uh, and dare I say it, that the Huawei... Um, uh, stroke uh, Apple uh, devices story is, is kind of really underlying that at the moment because certain Asian brands are still having good telecoms growth in China whereas Apple again those numbers people like them generally but they still had a 22% decline in revenues in that first quarter in the China region. Mm. Uh, speaking Zalando. yes speaking of tech yes nice segue uh, this is a stock that has rallied 86% in 2019, Good God. 86%. So uh, clearly fell off a cliff at the end of last year. Huge uh, recovery story. The numbers posted today, active customer growth at 27.2 million. That is up 14.1%. The traffic uplift to 924 million site visits. So that's climbed 29.5%. They're talking about a high customer satisfaction and that they're really getting back in touch with the customer. So what does it mean for numbers? Well, Q1 net income at 17.6 million euros. Uh, the company's adjusted EBIT margin at 0.5%. Uh, and uh, on Q1 adjusted EBIT, that's at 6.4 million euros. So uh, the company is talking about a strong start to 2019 and profitable growth. And I think it did have a bit of a sort of stop-start year back in 2018 where investors had been questioning the journey. And uh, obviously, when the markets turned south, it was one of the first stocks to be sold off and fairly aggressively. So well, uh, the start of the year, let's see whether that can continue, because it's still not been an easy space. We've seen it from some of the others, that there's huge competitive wins now in the online space. It's not just on the high street.
I'm going to go to the wall, but not before I've uh, gone to the Oxford English Dictionary or somewhere along those lines or on my search engine, which may or may not be in a big American company owned by Alphabet, uh, and looked at two words. One of them is transitory, which the, the adjective transitory, which means not permanent. Uh, then I've gone to transient, which is also an adjective, which means lasting only for a short time, impermanent. Now, you all know why I'm using these two words, because they were used... Um, quite extensively last night by uh, Mr Powell, the Federal Reserve Chair. And they were two words that the children didn't like. When I say children, that's a metaphor for Mr and Mrs Market. They got a little bit upset because they thought he might, again, we've used this phrase, roll over, uh, because there's a little bit of political pressure coming his way, of course, potentially from incoming Fed members as well, saying, we should cut and we should cut now. But he is in his defence saying, look, Growth's all right out there, you know. We did have a 3.2% print in the first quarter. Employment does seem to be okay. And did you see the ADP numbers, by the way? They, they may or may not be a reflection of what we get on payroll tomorrow. But so when you've got jobs strong, growth strong, mixed data elsewhere, and there was some weaker data yesterday as well, by the way, uh, including the uh, ISM manufacturing figures as well. So it is an opaque picture. But in terms of inflation, and this is where the elephant in the room is as well, the latest PCE was 1.6. But he was talking about the inflationary weakening pressures at the moment being, and I'll go back to those two adjectives, transient and transitory. And that's what the market was a little bit phased about. And I say a little bit because these are not big moves, ladies and gentlemen. You know this. And for those of you listening on the podcast, I'll tell you what the moves were. Uh, Nasdaq down six tenths of one percent, the brave new world. Uh, the S&P 500 down eight tenths of one percent. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average down six tenths. We have come a long way, don't forget. The dollar index, I actually thought what we saw was relatively hawkish. Hence, the three-month move now is 2.06. But we have been hitting recent highs, albeit off the high there at 97.59. Again, what did the yield curve make of it as well? Well, initially, uh, we saw people thinking, oh, bonds are going to rally. Then they came off a little bit. But the net net is we still have a 2.5% 10-year yield. We still have a 2.31% two-year yield. Now, let me just show you what the Asian markets are making all of this before we get to our guests. Uh, we have the uh, Japanese market cost, I uh, beg your pardon, the, uh, the, the South Korean market uh, trading four tenths of 1% higher. Uh, and we have the ASX 200 trading down seven tenths of 1%. Over in Hong Kong, we have rallied by six tenths of 1%. European opening calls for the market is the following. Here we go. We're called a Oof. Uh, look at that. Decent sized move to the downside, actually. Best part of 1% for the FTSE MIB over in Italy. Uh, Zetradax called down by around about half 1%. But everybody focusing on two words, which kind of mean the same, Karen. Let's take a well, Let's get into the detail. The Federal Reserve played down the chances of a rate cut as it kept interest rates on hold at its May meeting. In a statement, the Fed cited a lack of inflationary pressure in the economy despite a, quote, solid jobs market. Responding to a question from CNBC at a press conference, Fed Chair Jerome Powell described low inflation as likely transitory. The committee would be concerned if inflation were running persistently above or below 2%. So persistent carries the sense of something that's not transient, something that will sustain over a period of time. And in this case, um, as we look at this at these readings in the first quarter for core, we do see good reasons to think that some or all of, of the unexpected decrease may wind up being transient. If we did see a persistent uh, inflation running persistently below, then that is something the committee would be concerned about and something that we would take into account in setting policy. 
Steve Blitz has joined us, Chief U.S. Economist at T.S. Lombard. Steve, welcome. Good morning. Hi. The market was primed for some form of evidence to confirm that there might be a rate cut, just a little bit of insurance to try and shore up inflation. That did not come through yesterday. So what does it mean for the market? Well, first off, I'm not exactly sure why the markets were expecting a rate cut uh, yesterday. I think the only thing markets were really expecting, which is sort of a little bit of inside baseball, to use an American phrase, uh, was the five basis point cut in OER. IOER uh, because of the movement in the Fed funds rate, but that's really a technical issue. Uh, and it was some questions to whether or not they would actually cut it or whether they would give some direction to the uh, capital market desk at the Fed. Okay, so to the main point of the story, um, he's going to wait a little bit uh, to see whether or not it is transitory. I think for the most part, though, I think the way to think about it is that the Fed is really seeding the spotlight of policy that drives the U.S. economy to the White House. And this isn't a political issue so much. It's just that if you think of fiscal and regulatory issues and then monetary policy, the price of money is where it should be, that they feel it should be relative to where the economy is, relative to keeping uh, financial problems from getting too large. Uh, so at this point, he's you know happy to just be paint drying. Can I give uh, you another idea to test? I mean, one thought is that there's not a lot of ammunition to work with these days for central banks. And if you are going to serve up some forward guidance indicating a rate cut, that's quite powerful. Why would you give it away at this point when you've had decent GDP data in the first quarter? We saw another print on ADP. The numbers are starting to firm up. Isn't it a tool to try and keep in your back pocket in case there is a further weakening of data down the track? Use that forward guidance to, to create some confidence in the market, which doesn't need it given it's at a record high. Yeah, well, first of all, the, the market is at a record high. You know, it's very interesting in his comments. He talked about how, one, the inflation slowdown wasn't a problem from something caused by the Fed. Uh, we disagree on that. But then he talked about one of the reasons for the confidence that he has, that the Fed has, in the economy growing forward is the easing of financial conditions. The equity market's up a lot. Well, the financial conditions have eased because they eased. All right? Now, he gave an opening and a closing comment, which told you exactly where his mindset is. His opening comment was, which in part was directed to the White House, when he said, our primary goal is to keep this expansion going, to keep employment growing, and to get inflation up to 2%. So what he's telling you in that comment, okay, oh, and then the second comment, just to keep the point, the closing comment was, you know, when we look at productivity growth of late, when we look at civilian labor force growth of late, of late maybe core, uh, you know, trend growth is higher than we thought, and that's one of the reasons why these lower unemployment rates aren't generating the inflation that we thought it would generate. Okay, so what's that telling you? That's telling you, one, if the economy does start to take off here later this year, he's going to be very patient before he makes the next rate hike, uh, believing sort of like the Greenspan 90s, the productivity capital deepening story. And the second part is because they do want inflation to get up to 2% and keep things going, if things start to slow down just a little bit, if inflation starts to look a little bit lower, he's going to jump in. So he's got a hair trigger to the downside. But that hair trigger means, you know, let's wait a little bit. He thinks it's transitory. I don't think that's going to be in the highlight reel of his, uh, his press conferences talking about portfolio management fees. But nevertheless, he made his point, which is that, look, we want to wait. We want to see if trend inflation numbers are really drifting lower. I think that the economic data is slowing enough that he'll be there sometime later this summer and he will 
cut 25 basis points. But, you know, it's, it's just a question of being patient. And patience means it's a moot point policy. We, we look at all this stuff as a, uh, uh, all, every, every, every nuance, it fills a few mornings of news, but it's so, going to so fade. Which, which data are you looking at that gives you cause for concern here? Because we've just come off the back of 3.2% GDP print. Right. And people looked at that, the consensus was around 2%. Nobody understands why the Fed should have pivoted to a more dovish stance if you continue to deliver that kind of run rate on the right. US economy. It doesn't make sense either with the tightness of the labor market we have and some of the early indications of a pickup in uh, uh, wages. So what's, what's, the, what's the rationale? Well, if you go back to December, the rationale was the market basically tanking. Uh, you had a shift in the yield curve, which was telling you, and by the way, the yield curve is still fairly flat and Fed funds to two years are negative, which has never been very good for the extension of credit. Uh, when you look at that 3.2% growth, there's a lot of odd, there's a couple of very big odd aspects to it. The biggest one is that you had this flat production, this surge in inventory, and a reduction in imports. It, it doesn't add up in terms of just the numbers, right? And usually in the U.S., when inventory goes up, imports are going up as well. So now when we look forward, you say, okay, there's got to be some sort of inventory correction coming. And when we looked at the ISM data and it showed this really sharp drop in net new orders and production and employment starting to come off, it's telling you that the manufacturing sector is going to start to see we've that. We've got to leave it there. I've got 20 seconds. Will not a trade deal with China do the same work as a rate cut would deal? Do. I don't know about a rate cut, but it would certainly help an awful lot. And, yeah. that, and that goes to the heart so of my point. If you point. added a rate cut to a trade deal with China, couldn't we have too much stimulus? Uh, no, because to his point is that, you know, perhaps trend growth is a lot higher. And that's one of the reasons why inflation hasn't come up. Mr. Blitz, we've got to leave it there. Nice to see you. As nice to see Steve. you Thank as well. you very much indeed for coming really early. 621 here in London. Uh, Steve Blitz, Chief U.S. Economist at T.S. Lombard. Jeffrey. Uh, we talked about the BNP numbers at the top of the hour. We're going to hear from the CFO of the bank, Lars Machinal, as the lender reports a rise in first quarter net income. We'll do that after the break. And in one of the quirks of TV, if you want to hear what I'm saying now again, uh, and you just can't get enough of the score box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Yes, you can hear Karen, you can hear Jeff, and I'll stick in my tuppence worth as well. It's on Spotify, uh, iTunes, you name it. BNP Paribas has posted a more than 22% rise in first quarter net income, beating expectations. The French lender also saw revenue for the period grow thanks to a strong performance at its international financial services and corporate banking units. BNP also backed its 2020 targets. Uh, Juliana joins us from Paris with more on the story. Juliana. Jeff, good morning. Well, it's a very different picture this quarter to last quarter when I was here in Paris. Revenues and net income have both beat expectations. As you mentioned, revenues up 3.2%, net income up 22% versus the same period last year. And Q4 was hit by those extreme market conditions, which particularly weighed on trading revenues. Now this quarter, interestingly, CIB, which houses their global markets business, was a key driver of that revenue growth. Meanwhile, domestic markets, which is their retail banking 
housing business was a bit more lackluster. On the cost front, which is a key issue for investors, they've also been making progress. They generated a positive JAWS effect this quarter, which means they've grown revenues at a faster rate than they've grown expenses. They've made progress on that cost-income ratio, coming down to 75.8% from 76.5% last year. So their transformation plan really beginning to bear fruit. Now, 2020 targets, which they downgraded last quarter, remember, they have reaffirmed this quarter. And I had a chance to catch up with the CFO of BNP, Lars Machinil, and ask him for a bit more detail around those trading revenues and what changed from last quarter to this quarter. Have a listen. If you look at trading, there's two things. If you look at fixed income, that really we did quite material changes. So we uh, introduced further digitalization, but we also created the capital markets to really serve our clients, and that led to a very strong growth in fixed income. When you look at equities, indeed, there was the turmoil at the end of the year in Europe, and what you saw is a gradual return of customers uh, to those equity kind of products. So that is why at the end we were kind of ramping up at the speed we would have expected, but it took time to ramp up. Bottom line is that performance has improved on both the revenue and the cost front. They have reiterated those 2020 targets on the returns front, making progress there. The one flying the ointment today, I would say, perhaps is capital. Their core tier one capital ratio has dropped by 10 basis points to 11.7%, still well below the 12% target they've set for themselves in 2020. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.